And ladies and gentlemen, he's one of the all-time greats, my buddy, Mr. John Wayne. You're listening to the John Wayne Gritcast with me, Ethan Wayne. The hell I was We're talking all about the life and legacy of my father. John Wayne. Mr. John Wayne. John Wayne is the United States of America. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. Well, Richard, gosh, thank you for joining us. Um, today we have Richard Childress on the show, a NASCAR legend, and also uh, a very successful winery owner in North Carolina. Um, we crossed paths because of Patrick Gotch and our relationship with the Cowboy Channel and your relationship with the Cowboy Channel. And uh, you're such an interesting person. We thought it'd be great if, um, if we got to talk to you for a minute on the, the Gritcast. Obviously, you're running that car with uh, now with John Wayne's silhouette on it, and um, I thought we'd just get to know Richard a little bit. Maybe we could start from your childhood, move forward. How yeah. Did this happen? yeah, first off, thank you for having me on. Uh, as you know, I'm a big, big fan of your father's, and now became a fan of yours as well. Uh, after the great tour you gave me of the John Wayne Museum there in the uh, stockyard. You know, uh, yeah, Patrick and I have been friends for a few years, several years here, and uh, he was telling me about building the uh, John Wayne Museum, and I walked through it before it was even done. They were putting up the sheetrock. They were, it wasn't even close. He said, well, we're going to open before the national finals. I said, Patrick, how are you going to do this? He said, you just watch me. It'll be open. And I've been there a couple of three times since then. Each time I see new stuff, improvements. So it's like our museum, our, our Richard Childress Racing Museum here. You're constantly bringing new stuff in and out and changing it to for the, the fans to come in and take a look at, just like you have done there. I find interesting stuff that I get there. But Going back to a little bit of uh, history about Richard Childress, you know, uh, I was a kid and uh, just wanting to race. You know, first off, my father died when I was about six years old, so had a had a pretty trying time, and uh, uh, I was very fortunate to be able to take the right roads in life, and uh, ended up the the roads. You know, in life, you always got different directions you can go. And I was very fortunate to had taken the road I did and uh, wanted to work and see the right things in life and do the right things in life. And uh, I always thought I was a cowboy when I was a kid, you know, I've been wearing my Wrangler jeans since day one, still wear them every day. So uh, was there somebody who helped you, you know, turn right instead of the left uh, when you were young? You know, I think, I think my, uh, my grandfather, he was a, pe a preacher, an old-timey preacher, you know, that they built the, uh, uh, you know, he did the road shows, and he still had his uh, own uh, little church, but he also uh, did the road shows, the tent revivals and stuff. And, you know, as a kid, I went with him and, and listened and understood uh, a lot about the right and wrong. And in life, you always got choices, and especially when you're young. And, and having somebody to help steer the young people in life, just like you, your brother, uh, Patrick, all of, the, all of the things that you've done, 
you've had somebody mentor you along the way. And I had several people along the way that really helped guide me to make a lot of the right decisions in life. That's true. People are, uh, are very important, especially when you're young, but, but that continues today, you know, having access to somebody like you or Patrick helps me in, uh, in my life even today, but I can think back losing my dad at 17. Uh, he was older, so he was busy with work. He had some financial issues. He and my mother were separating, uh, and things were busy. So in my early teenage years, I was kind of a free roamer. I had, I had loose reins. And um, luckily, right after my father died, when I was 17, uh, one of the stuntmen that I knew as a child, uh, we, we happened to speak. And he said, what are you doing? And you know, my dad died in my junior year of high school. I missed the last three months of it. Uh, I wasn't sure how that was going to, what was going to happen next. And he hired me uh, at 17 and put me to work on the, um, on the Blues Brothers. That and kid. gave me, all of a sudden, I had sort of an interest and a direction in something that was exciting to me. And uh, I, I always wonder, you know, if that guy hadn't done that, how would my, you know, I was pretty rudderless at that point. What would have happened to me? And it's kind of a scary thought for me, you know, thinking back, like, thank God he took me on. And then another guy after that job took me on back in LA. And uh, I owe them a lot because it just gave me a nudge to go down the right road instead of the wrong one, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I just feel for the young kids today that are out there, you know, Life has changed so much from when you and I and uh, we were coming up. You know, we didn't have cell phones and so on. And, you know, there's the good and the bad about social media. Yeah. And that's that's what I think a lot of kids today are being distracted with that. I've tried to teach our grandsons. we got Austin Dillon and Ty Dillon, who both are in NASCAR racing now. And we always taught them when they were very young. Uh, Yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. The, the right things about life. And today, I don't think kids are getting the guidance. Some of them are. I know some great, great kids out there that their parents are teaching them. There's so many that gets wound up in the social media and it can blindside a lot of the kids, some of the stuff that's on there. So, uh, but I was fortunate, speaking of Austin, he was the biggest John Wayne fan. When he was a little kid, he, that's all he would watch. I mean, every once or twice a week, he can sit today at 30-some years old. He went through the museum, and we had to be somewhere else. And he was reading. I mean, he get hung up on every little thing. And his wife finally said, we got to go, Austin. We got to go. But he could recite about every word to about any of the John Wayne movies. And he's a, he was a big fan. And I think, Ethan, I think those things, the movies, the TV shows, the characters in those days were role models. They were. And I think that helped, helped Austin as a young kid to understand so much. Uh, and John Wayne was his role model. He didn't have some hip-hop rock singer or anything like that, he had a real true hero. And the same deal with Ty, my other grandson, 
you know, each one of them had good role models throughout their life. Seems like, uh, you know, we have, we have some, we have great shows now, you know, these, these mini series and all these things, but it just seems like, okay, we've got production value and great writers and we can make all these really unique things come to life. Uh, but the characters are still deficient. You know, they're not aspirational characters that their moral compass is off or they're facing a situation where they got to make a choice and, and they're, you know, they're forced to make a bad choice and every season it seems to get worse. And that's why I think a lot of people, and it's generations of people, because John Wayne is shared from generation to generation to generation. Even today in the museum, we have a lot of kids who come in who are, who are like your, uh, your guys who they've grown up on John Wayne. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it's interesting to me because I, I, didn't come, I didn't come to him through the screen like most people did. I, you know, I was on the backside of it. So I was kind of backstage with him. So I loved my father. But I wasn't getting the same imprint that you get from the front of the screen. That didn't happen until later in life. And now I'm like a kid who tries to watch him all the time and tries to get, you know, sort of magnetic north on my moral compass from those films because they're so aspirational. And, you know, in life, I think morality was a bigger uh, issue, uh, you know, when I was a young boy on television and film. And um, and now I think it's whatever makes the most money or gets the most clicks. And obviously social media, it has those algorithms that incite craziness to get clicks. So yeah. that's the bad side of it. The good side of it is that you can communicate and you can, you know, if you learn to use it properly, you can use it to your advantage. Uh, but if you uh, don't, you know, if you're a young impressionable kid, sure, it's it's tough. So uh, it's crazy. I know going back to when you said you were doing met the, one of your mentors was a stunt uh, coordinator. I uh, I did stunt work for many years back to keep my racing going. I did some work with Burt Reynolds, uh, Smoking the Bandit. Uh, oh wow! Uh, the last one I did was Super Mario Brothers, and it was some wild times back in those days. And I'm still here to talk about it, just like you are. Oh, that's great. That's great. I still haven't been to your winery, and I'm really excited to get back there and and see it one day. Are, are you going to the NFR by any chance? I have uh, I have a couple of other appointments. My plans is if there's any way anything happens on one of these deals I've got to do, already made commitments, uh, I'll be there. Okay. If not, Man, it just kills yeah. me. I can't get out there. Well, we'll cross paths again soon. How did you get to to start? Did you race anything when you were a young boy? Like, did you, <coughs> you always interested, or were you running booze? Like, how did this start? <coughs> a little bit of all of the above. I had a. Uh, uh, I was a kid. Like I said, my father passed away. Had a stepdad. He carried my brother and I over there one night and dropped us off at Bowman Gray Stadium, a little quarter-mile racetrack. And uh, I uh, seen these kids selling peanuts and popcorn, and I went back and asked him, I said, hey, we want to go to the race this Saturday night. We lived about five miles from there. And I said, can we go back over? Can you taste it? He said, no, but if y'all want to go, just walk over there. Now, a kid today can't walk five miles and then walk home at 12 o'clock at night. That, that's not heard of today. 
So my brother and I went over there and we sold peanuts and popcorn and the race drivers were my heroes back in the day. And, uh, you know, Lee Petty, Richard Petty, all of these guys back in the day, uh, the, the Myers brothers, I can go on and on about the real heroes of mine. And, uh, so I said, man, if I ever get to money, I want to build me a, get me an old race car. So they started this division. I went out and bought a 47 Plymouth and paid $20 for it. And that was the best investment I've ever made in my life. And started racing at Bowman Gray Stadium and, and life's about breaks throughout my career. I kept getting breaks, but, uh, Ethan, a lot of times when I speak, I do some speaking engagements. I'll, uh, I'll say only in America, only in America could a kid with a $20 race car and a dream be here today doing the grid podcast with Ethan. Uh, it's just unbelievable. So I did that for a while and raced and uh, then I moved up. I had so many breaks along the way in my life that I've been able to do it. A lot of it's to do with people you surround yourself with and, Started racing cup racing in 69 when they boycotted at, Tala, at Talladega. And we, uh, that gave me the break. I left there that day with about probably $3,000 or something back in 69. I said, man, I'll never have to work again in my life. <laughs> well, here I am still working <laughs> at an older age. So then I went on in uh, 80. One, 1981, I retired. I started in 65 and retired in 81 from driving. I was still young, but I could see how the sport was changing. And the direction it was going, I knew I wasn't going to survive as a driver. So I became an owner, put Dale Earnhardt in it, best move ever made for 10 races in 81. Ricky Rudd for 82 and 83. And Dale came back in 84. And we ran till we lost Dale. We were really good friends. We were hunting buddies, fishing buddies, and more than just being business partners. We were good friends. We did a lot together. And, uh, you know, then in 2001, we lost Dale. Not only did I lose our franchise of our company, which he was, I lost a really good friend. And uh, that, uh, that was a tough decision. How do you keep going? At that point, I was going to quit. I don't I can talk for hours about this story. But anyway, I made the decision to keep going from a a hunting trip that Dale and I was on in in Arizona, White Mountain Apache Reservations. And uh, so I uh, kept racing, hired Kevin Harvick, raced. And uh, today we have my grandson, Austin Dillon, driving the three, my other grandson, Ty Dillon. He ran the threesome in the truck in the Xfinity, and uh, now he's driving for GMS Motorsports in the 94. Wow. So that's a long story, but that kind of tells you how I got to where I'm at. Yeah. And did you always have an interest in wine? Or was that something that came out of a real estate transaction? Because <laughs> you, you know, it's that people love. I hear about it all the time. Yeah, you know, uh, the wine business, uh, people say, how'd you get in the wine business? I, I said, drinking way too much wine one night. <laughs> but now, the true story is we were racing in Sonoma, yeah. and we were racing in uh, Watkins Glen area. Back in the 70s, and 
uh, Riverside, Ontario, before wine was that big in Napa, uh, I would go there and we'd race and we'd go to all the wineries over there, which is a lot back in the day. Today, most of them's been uh, uh, redeveloped. But uh, I really liked wine back in the 70s and uh, started go racing Sonoma and started racing the Finger Lakes in New York, Watkins Glen. And I said, man, if I ever get some money, I want to start a winery. So we've been fortunate to do a winery and be able to uh, uh, very, you know, successful. And it's something that I've just dreamed about for years. And uh, we built, we did a wine for Patrick called the Cowboy Channel and RFD TV and uh, sold a lot to, uh, you know, to the great farmers out there. Oh, good. Good. (laughs) Patrick has a really interesting story as well. uh, And I hope we get to get him on here uh, to talk about it soon. The, um, the the winery, like you went beyond just making wine. I mean, it's a pretty significant destination for your area because, you know, I have friends and, and acquaintances out there and everybody knew the winery. It's a place that people go. They travel. Yeah, we're, we're, we've been very fortunate. This The pandemic knocked us back some, but prior to that, we had over 250,000 people through it a year. Now this year, even way with the first two or three months being off, we're still going to go over 300,000 people going through it this year. So, and we do about 60 weddings. That's a lot of weddings in 52 weeks, but two or three a week sometime. And, wow. Yeah. And do a lot of live events. So it's a lot going on there. A big operation. How did you yeah. get into hunting? When did that start? Oh man, that was, uh, when I was a kid, probably seven, eight years, my step, my stepfather's daddy carried me hunting one day. And we were setting up, he said, you know, we're just where we had old rabbit guns and we'd get rabbits out. We ate that when we was a kid because we didn't have a lot of money and uh, we didn't even have running water in our house. So, uh, you outdoors didn't have bathrooms. Water in your house? <laughs> no, huh? we had get the water out of the spring and bring it up and put it in buckets. And then we had outhouses for the the outside. We'd eat rabbits and squirrels and whatever was out there to eat back in the day. Wow. And uh, so he said, let's go squirrel hunting today. So he sat me on a bank. We just sit there. He said, you got to sit still. Don't move. And uh, I just love the outdoors. Even when I was a kid, we used to camp out. They'd let us camp out. And uh, ever since that, I've just fell in love with hunting. I've been fortunate to be able to hunt all over the world from Mongolia to, to Chikistan to Turkey to you name it. I've been all over the world hunting in uh, Africa. I've been to Africa like 24 times, I think, 24, 25 times. And so I've, I've been very fortunate to be able to, to do that. And hunters are your biggest conservationists today and that's one of the things I, I have a big fundraiser we just had our 17th or 18th annual uh, 18th annual congressional sportsman foundation fundraiser and we uh, uh, we ended up uh, raising a million three for conservation <clears throat> the Pittman Robertson 
everybody that buys a license, ammunition, uh, you got the Dingle Johnson Act for all your fishing equipment, all that billions of dollars that's been raised from your hunting and fishing yeah. that goes to conservation. So that's a big, big deal. And I'm proud to be a, along there with those folks. Well, if we can help in that in any way, we're, we're certainly open <laughs> to it. It's a great organization. What, what were you hunting in Arizona? You mentioned you were in Arizona, on the east coast of Arizona with Dale. No, yeah, we were elk hunting. Elk hunting? We elk hunting. I was just in Montana. I had ranches in Montana until a couple of years ago, and uh, we uh, would always elk hunt out there and just got back from there from elk hunting, got a nice elk, and I uh, uh, actually gave the cake and the horns. You got to ride everything out when you give it away to someone that hadn't, didn't get an elk, but wanted one, a young guy. And uh, I kept the meat. I love elk meat, my wife and I. So we, when it comes to red meat, we eat a lot of elk. Do you ever, um, did you notice a difference between Arizona elk or Montana elk? Any flavor differences? Not really. I, I can't tell the difference. Now, some people may, but I can't, I can't tell a difference. You know, it's just, uh, elk meat's just good, period. Yeah, it's delicious. <laughs> Yeah, delicious. Well, maybe one day we can go hunting. Let's let's do it. I I'm getting ready to go. Uh, where am I? I'm going with uh, Governor Christie No up in South Dakota pheasant oh, hunting. I'm taking uh, some friends that we auctioned off at the Congressional Sportsman on a bear hunt, and I just did a uh, uh, Congressional Sportsman hunting and fishing deal at my place at Bray's Island. For 20 guys that paid good money to go um, hunting and fishing with myself and Johnny Morris with Bass Pro and Gabellas. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we, uh, we raised a lot of money for, for conservation. I don't know if you were in charge, if you were part of it, but Johnny Morris came through the exhibit. Oh, he did? When yeah, did he, he came through the exhibit and I got a chance to walk through with him. And it was really, uh, I mean, it was just a few minutes, but it was great to meet him. Yeah, he's a good friend. I, we've done so much together. We were fishing this year in the Northwest Territory and fishing and hunting and all. You know, he's just, he's one, to me, he's the modern day Theodore Roosevelt when it comes to conservation. Mm. Yeah, he's got a, he cuts a wide swath through that lifestyle. So that's, it's, oh, yeah. you have somebody like that. Yeah, if you ever get the opportunity to go through his museum, the uh, Wonders of Wildlife, it is completely amazing. The aquariums he has up there, the wildlife features and everything. It's in uh, Springfield, Missouri. Yeah. And it's an amazing, amazing place. Yeah, I'd like to go there. I almost went with Patrick, and then something happened. We, we got the plans changed, but um, I'll be uh, – in the south in like may may or june and uh, maybe i'll get a chance to run up there well if you are come by children's vineyards visit our rice shop we have a museum here i have a lot of uh i have a wildlife conservation museum we have uh uh auto racing museum it has some of my old stuff in it i have 43 dell earnhardt cars that we have on display you have 43, about, sir. 43 cars? 
Yeah, of the Dale Earnhardt cars. I got some of them on display at other museums, but we have uh, we have probably 35 or 40 in this museum and of the original Dale Earnhardt cars that he drove. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, some of the Kevin Harvick's 500 winner, uh, uh, Austin Dillon's 500 winner, and some championship cars. And it's pretty amazing, the museum that we put together here. A lot of history. You, you, um, you <coughs> for that congressional uh, outdoor organization, but you also have another uh, foundation that you do a lot of work for, correct? Yes, a couple. You know, the Children's Institute for Pediatric Trauma. Yeah is one that's near and dear to our heart. It, trauma is the number one killer of children in America, beyond all the rest of them put together almost. I mean, kids, over 12,000 kids died from trauma when we got involved in 2008. It's gone down. I wish I could say we got the credit for it, but I think a lot of safety and, and different reasons, the numbers have gone down. It's still like 9,500 last year. I looked at it. I think it was the year before last. But uh, we do a lot of research. We do a lot of work with the prevention. Uh, you know, like when an accident happens and the first responders show up, they uh, they just don't go right to the child first because you don't treat a child like you do an adult. They'll know how to work on the adult. So we, we do a lot with the first responders. Uh, head injury is a big, big part of it. And uh, so I'm very proud of what we've accomplished, the different. I know we've made some difference, but it's not a tough way to measure because we do a lot of it through so many different hospitals mm -hmm. in the country. Well, you know, I hear people making jokes about, oh, we didn't have bike helmets and all that stuff. <coughs> we kids, and We didn't have seatbelts. And I always go, yeah, and a lot of us didn't make it. You know, I lost a lot of friends ejected from cars when there was a car crash or you know, getting run over by a boat or hitting their head real hard on a bicycle or something. So, yeah, I, I get it. But that stuff does make a difference. Yeah, and, and just the research, uh, you know, how, how to treat a child when he has that. And, uh, you know, we started, We there was 15 level one pediatric trauma centers in America. That was 2008. Now there's probably 50, 60, 70. Level one is when they're there 24 hours ready to take care of a child. If you're watching this podcast and your child gets injured, if you can take them to a level one pediatric trauma center, their chances of survival goes way up just because of the medical, uh, the equipment, and everything there. We did uh, Weight Medical Center as one that we did to set a model to show other hospitals to bring them in. So we've, we've been able to bring a lot along there too. Well, boy, when you're hurt, it's sure nice to get to a place where they know what they're doing. And if you had a child that was hurt, you know, it, it must be a great comfort to people to know that they're getting to a level one center <laughs> yeah it's uh it's it's a different it's a life changer we got a medical truck that goes to different small areas to small rescue squads hospitals stuff like that that teaches how to mostly the first responders how to handle that because the first hour the golden hour of any 
anyone's injury is that first hour, how you're handled, how you're taken care of. And that's what we've tried to help teach as well. You've probably seen a lot of that around the track, the difference that it makes to have good responders. Oh, yeah, we, we've, uh, we've got some of the best. Uh, and they're trained and they know how to handle a driver or a pit crewman. You know, we've, you know, I don't want to say we don't have as much happen today as we did because there's been a lot of more safety put in. But uh, I think just NASCAR alone, the way they've worked on the safety part of it, when we lost Dale in 2001, it woke the world up of, of auto racing because they, you know, you always think, well, it can't happen to me. But when it happened to a, an iconic person like Dale Earnhardt, it uh, it woke the world up. It can happen to anybody. The safety has just went skyrocketed on the cars, the seat, the tracks. Uh, they got soft walls. They'll hit a solid concrete wall. Today they have walls that absorb some of the impact. Right. And so, I mean, things change a lot. It's sad that things in life has to happen to change that big a change. But that's what happened there was just all the different, the different safety that's came out of that one accident. And even people just knowing and understanding and, and being able to see, you know, maybe on television, uh, you know, how things are handled. I know, oddly enough, in North Carolina, I broke my back. And I've broken some other small bones, and there's just a feeling when your bone is broken, it's a, it's a deep sort of unique kind of pain. And I, I was laying there, and I thought, gosh, you know, this hurts like a broken bone. And I just watched something on television about trauma and this and the backboards, and the neck braces. So, you know, I laid there and, uh, when my, my friends, uh, actually Amy came in to, uh, find me and I said, Hey, look, I'm okay. Like I feel okay, but I think I might've broken my back. So let's mm. I'm lay here till they bring the neck in the backboard. And uh, sure enough, I had, had a few fractures in my back and everything's fine, but uh, I'm sure glad I saw that little piece of information. I didn't stand up and sever my spinal cord, you know, oh. in the wrong mood. Yeah. yeah it, uh, and I'm not holding it against North Carolina. It's a beautiful <laughs> state, but it was a little rough when I was there. What were you doing? I was in the Bring upper banks and I was an, I was a new kite surfer. This was in the early two thousands and the, uh, my instruction was minimal and my the older gear was a little um a little uh a little more dangerous i guess and uh i just i made a, a sort of a rookie mistake and you know got whipped up and over these trees and coming down through the branches and then whipped up again and down through the branches three times i mean the wind was so knocked out of me I can't even describe, I don't know how long it was before I could actually like uh, get air back into my, my lungs. And I looked like, uh, you know, I got in a fight with a wildcat because as that kite pulled me up through all those, the trees weren't tall trees. You know, they were like, I don't know, maybe 12 or 15 feet high, but man, you get drugged through those things. It was really like taking a beating. I didn't, uh, 
uh, at the time I was thinking, I'm going to get killed just by going through these branches, you know, <laughs> anyway. Yes, wow. Uh, it was in the Outer Banks, it was near Cape Hatteras, and uh, up until that point, I was having a really nice time out there. Yeah, we were, uh, speaking of North Carolina, we were doing the uh, stunt work on the Super Mario Brothers in an old shipyard in Wilmington, North Carolina. They oh, used wow. to build concrete ships down there. And uh, there was a couple of injuries, and that I got beat up pretty good in that one. And so I, I decided then I didn't, I ain't gonna say about stunt, stunt coordinator or anybody, but uh, I decided then that was the end of my stunt work. <laughs> you know, like you, you probably did some pretty wild things too. Well, and it depends who you're working for, you know. I mean, even. Yep. You know, even a tragedy on that set recently, you know? And, yeah. You know, I was around movies where it was just all guns all day and, you know, there's no mistakes made in over 200 films. It, it, it's it's tragic. It, it's, uh, it's serious business, even, you know, playing pretend. But you're doing stunt work, you're really in danger. And if you're handling a firearm, it's really dangerous. You know, you, yep. you, obviously we, we see that now. Um, what else? Oddly enough, uh, you guys have all the special forces back there in that area too, training because where I was, there was no, you know, it was like miles from any, like, it's, it's pretty remote. So I think it was a volunteer group of guys that they had to get together to come out with an ambulance or the, the, the unit to hook me up. And a special forces guy was at the kite surfing place that I was going to. And uh, he actually came out and I was in the middle of poison oak and I don't know, sumac and these briars. It was just a horrible place to be. And I was laying there in the mud and the guy came out and like checked me out and uh, sat there with me and got me loaded up and like would never, he, he didn't give his name or anything, but it was nice having somebody like that there because he knew, like he obviously knew his business. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of that with the the, the different military bases and the uh, stuff like that. We do do a lot of work here besides racing. We do other outside work for the military, and uh, it's an honor to work with them. I I used to go to uh, uh, I've been to, I was in Iraq. I used to travel a lot to do like the. Uh, what U.S. though, but it was something similar. We would go over there, some of the race teams, race drivers and stuff. And I would go over there and, and visit troops and all over the world. And uh, I'd always go at Christmas to try to make them feel a little more at home. But I was in Iraq, I think it was in 2004, could be wrong, 3-4. And it caught uh, Saddam Hussein. And I said, where have you got him? This was right there. I got pictures of me holding his, uh, uh, holding his gold uh, uh, AK or whatever he had, AR, AK. And I was shooting the bird to him. You know, I'm not going to do it on the podcast, but that's how we feel. Do whatever you want, Richard. <laughs> but I, uh, uh, I'd ride on, uh, on some of these big bombs on the military <laughs> fighters. You know, we'd ride. This one's for you, uh, Hussein, uh, but yeah, I, I really, you know, we don't, 
man, when I was a kid growing up, if you seen somebody with a uniform on, you had the highest respect for yeah. them as a police officer, fireman, military, yeah. whatever. And today it breaks my heart, just absolutely breaks my heart to see some of the things that's going on in this country. I never dreamed I would live to see some of the things that's going on in this country that's going on today. And uh, somewhere it has to be a stop. Yeah. And I don't know. A lot of people feel that way. A lot of us are disappointed with the direction that, that some of these things are going, you know, I think we need to, to fund the police and to get more training and uh, certainly look at, at different options for incarceration and, and uh, rehabilitation and trying to take, you know, if, if you got a team, you got a race car team and, and I'm on it, I'm the worst driver on your team. So you're going to send me to driving school and make me watch videos and try to, you know, try to help me up. So I don't drag the team down. I think we as a society have to do it. And in a, in a real capitalist society, you have that, you know, you're a successful guy and you take an inordinate amount of your time to help other people and to bring other people up and to fund causes that help bring other people up. I don't think we can rely on the government to do it. It, it doesn't have a good track record for doing it. It's never been able to do it, but private individuals can. Yeah, I think you, you're spot on there. It's, uh, we have to do something because I think this country has been through a lot of a lot of things throughout the history of it, through the different wars and hurricanes and battles and floods and, and everything you issues, think of. Right? And we've been through a lot of social issues. And, and we constantly improve. It might yep. not be as fast as some people want. We might have some, some people with, uh, you know, immature mindsets out there still. But as a country, we're constantly struggling to improve. And yeah. I don't think any other place in the world, one, gives you the opportunity, or two, is, is, is constantly trying to better itself. Yeah. I, I don't know. You've probably been. I've been to some of the communist countries. I was over in – I've been all over, the, you know, from Russia to, to Chikistan to uh, all of these different – and you go to Cuba and see the socialism and to see how bad – the most beautiful country in the world, and it's just gone to pots because of, you know, everything's ran by the government. You go in a restaurant, it's, it's ran by the government. Food's not good. You go to someone's house and eat, the food's great. And it's just, we have, we don't see this country going down that road. And if we don't do something like you say, the, the private sector, if we don't do something to help stand up and say enough is enough, uh, we gotta we gotta make some changes. I, I don't know. That's that's going to be the 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 toll of this country if we don't. Well, I have uh, I have hope that there's a, a a large majority of the people who feel uh, the way you do, and uh, if we could just find some way to come together, you know, we're kind of. It's hard, you know, we've got this bureaucracy builds bureaucracy, right? You, you, you see how a, business, a business is built and if, if you form a department, that department starts working almost for itself. 
you know, as opposed to the whole. And so it's, it's going to take some work to scale some of these things back and remove some of the control. Cause once they have the control, they never give it up. Right. Yeah. Never. Um, so I don't know. I'm on, I'm certainly on your side of that issue. Yeah. I've, I've been taught all my life and I teach our people. It's uh, accountability and respect. And that's what we got to put back in the hands of the people the citizens is we got to all be accountable for and, and incentive, we take right? they need to be incentivized to to yep. do something and you yep. take away all the incentive you know you just they go why no. and then their education is is really significant it doesn't have to be school education but just education on how things actually work mm -hmm. you know that's true. Yeah, uh, a lot of people are—they're not—they're not getting any of that, so they're trapped in this sort of cycle of, you know, you're born into a place. This is what certain people do. These are the habits they develop, and and that's where they languish and swirl. And there's, it's hard for them to get out of there. Yeah. Well, hopefully, for our kids and grandkids and great grandkids and the generations to come. We'll get it fixed for them. I don't know that it'll ever be back in the John Wayne days like I enjoyed life and like you enjoy life. Uh, man, we never locked our doors. We had didn't have air conditioning. We had screens and uh, to keep the mosquitoes out but and bugs. But other than that, you can't do it today. You got to have uh, alarms. You got to have everything. I had three guys. They came to kill my wife and I in 2019. And they had full intentions of breaking in. And they were going to kill us. They, said, they asked one of them, so what, why did you have these guns? They all of them had these guns. And it was three of them. And they said, uh, the one young kid said, we were going to break in, hold them hostage, and rob them. Well, you know what to do after they do that. You know, they end up killing you. So when I was a kid, you never dreamed of that. You never heard of that. I mean, you turn the news on today, there's a killing, a shooting, or something constantly. Winston-Salem used to be the, one of the safest places in the world today. You, you, I don't even like to go down there. You know, it's just it's crazy these things are happening in this country. And uh, But I was able to get a firearm, I believe, strong in our Second Amendment. If it hadn't been for God for waking me up to hear him and me having a firearm to protect myself and my wife, we'd have probably been gone today. So, uh, and you, you were firing your gun. Yes. I they shot were my shot fired. This is not just like you picked it up and they ran away. No, uh, they were outside, outside the house. And we seen, I seen it once I woke up, I seen they were there and they had guns. I said, and they were started walking back around. They busted the windows. They, I'll give everybody some advice. If you got an alarm system, that alarm system can be hacked. They thought they had hacked our complete alarm system. They had hacked the bottom floor. And so always get you a firewall built around your alarm system and change it every so often. And uh, so I seen them coming around the house. So 
I went and grabbed my pistol and ran right by an AR-15 because you're asleep. You're not thinking. All I knew, I had to stop them. So I, uh, when I opened the back door, the alarm went off. I ran around the corner and uh, the house where they were at, they were running. They were done 50, 75 yards from me. I just started throwing lead at them. And uh, so I was fortunate probably uh, that I, I know I was very fortunate to be able to have a, a firearm in my house. And they, people say uh, the bad guys will never turn their guns in. Trust me, the only thing it'll save is a good guy with a firearm. That's right. <coughs> They're already doing illegal stuff. Do you think banning, you ban guns, you're only banning them from the, the law-abiding people. Exactly. It's just ridiculous. It makes no sense. It's, it's just control. They're, they're, those guys, that's like those guys, they'd never turn a firearm, those firearms back in. You know, but <coughs> we did get them there jail now so which is nice good work richard nice work i mean you know you had, you had a gunfight in your house that's pretty incredible yeah they were outside it was just it, it was at my house and i could keep out you live in a terrible neighborhood no i live in a good perfect neighborhood they <coughs> you know we uh have our own compound built around it fence on the outside fence on the inside they had, once they got their computers, they had everything laid out on the computers about how to get to our house, get in. It, it's scary what these guys knew and how they done it. Hell, they knew my dog's name. Wow. What kind of cars we drove. Uh, once they got their computers and cell phones, it, it told the story. <laughs> so we were lucky to be here today. That's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Well, hats off to you for protecting your your wife and your home. And uh, I'm with you. You never see that back in our time. I never heard. You just never heard of anything like that in our time. I'm talking about my time. I'm a little older than you. but Well, uh, you know, I lived with <laughs> my father, obviously. So, you know, through the 60s and 70s, we lived in a old town called Newport Beach. It was a pretty small community. Right after I was born, he moved from Los Angeles down here to the beach, a place that he used to go when he was uh, younger and uh, hang out at the beach. Um, and we didn't we didn't lock the door, and we didn't have security. And I was free as a, a young boy to you know ride my bike and go all over town and do whatever I wanted. And I'd come home at dark and. Uh, he answered the door. He answered the phone. Um, and uh, we never had an issue. We always had guns around the house, loaded guns. And they weren't hidden. They were just on tables, you know. So yeah. we grew up. It was part of our lives. It was just a tool, you know, like yeah. a screwdriver. You can stick the screwdriver in your eye or you can unscrew a screw with it. You know, it, it can be used in a bunch of different ways. Um, so we were all used to guns. and. Uh, Obviously, I guess he had them there just, you know, to protect himself. One time we were burglarized and they stole his gun collection. So he, he kind of had a single story ranch style house. And then they built this sort of a large room uh, on the back of it. So it was a little bit separate from the house, but not really. It was like its own 
sort of space. And they, they got in there because we just had, you know, a few old-fashioned sliding glass doors going into that room. They just slid them open, loaded up the guns, and left. And, we, you know, nobody even knew. Um, but we didn't have any – no shootouts. No. I had to have that one. I hope I never have to have another. I, I hope you don't either, Richard. I hope you don't. Well, uh, is there anything you'd, you'd like people to – you want to send them to your uh, foundation site or – <clears throat> website or something you know i think just uh you can take tours on online with rcr racing you can see our racing shop you can see our museum uh tune in at the winery and buy some wine uh, or if you're in this area come by and visit it's uh it's became a place of destination we have when we very first opened the museum, we'd get 130, 140,000 people. We're probably down to 60 or 70. I think it's just the time right now. Uh, people, you know, during, during racing seasons when we get to most of the people in. So I just invite people to come and tour the winery, tour uh, the race shop or museum, and uh, have fun back in North Carolina. Sure, and if they if they go to your your websites so there, they can find out about the charities that you support. Yep, the Children's Institute for Pediatric Trauma. Okay. Uh, we have it. Uh, so I think if you look it up on there, you can see a lot there as well. Where will the um, the car with the John Wayne silhouette on it? Will it be running again next year? We we're trying to make plans. We're trying to work the schedule out. Uh, it's a Cowboy Channel. It's been the most popular car that's been photographed at the racetrack and i'll go back ethan that we had a we did a uh, a car with john when dale earnhardt he loved john wayne he loved clint eastwood and john wayne and we did a car uh for both of those and i've got a diecast if i find one of those diecasts i'm going to bring it to you okay with john wayne on it with dale earnhardt but if you walked in that trailer on Sunday morning and we had TVs in there and he'd go up in that lounge and maybe he had a rough evening or something, rough morning, he would uh, come in there and if he was watching Clint Eastwood on there, you better look out. It was going to be a long day for everybody who's racing against or John Wayne. He'd get fired up. That's awesome. They're really inspirational characters, you know? Uh, oh. and, and I think as... I just felt like I grew up in a little beach town, you know, as a movie star son. So there was that that aspect of life. But it was probably only 20 or 30% of my life. The rest of the time was on a movie set down in Mexico. And it's like growing up on a ranch or around a racetrack. You, you had to develop some kind of situational awareness for what was going on. Because I had to have my father's autograph cards ready in my pocket. I did not cross anybody's sight line, know where the lights are, don't slip any of the cables, don't make any noise, know when they're, you know, there were, there were some, some, so it was uh, like being on a ranch or something, you know, the, those kids yeah. to drive the tractors and, you know, cut the hay and do all the different stuff. And then, you know, then the other time we were on his boat, which was a World War II minesweeper. And uh, again, you know, we did everything ourselves. So there were some crew, but, you know, if you went diving, you put your own gear together. If you, you know, they went hunting up the boat, you, you did everything. We didn't really have a lot of other people 
We were going yeah. to a destination where they provided all the services to us. Yeah. Where was your dad born? I'm sitting here trying to think. Well, he was born in a town called Winterset, Iowa. Iowa. Yeah. I think Austin told me, do they have a house or something? Yeah. They have a house and they have a little uh, sort of a museum or, you know, they've got like a, a, a building with some information about his life and, and that area. And he was there just for a short time because um, his father had a lung condition and they told him to move out west to a drier climate. Yeah. So they, they came out to Mojave, which is still a pretty desolate location. And they, they tried to farm there and uh, weren't successful and ended up moving into the town of Glendale in the, the Los Angeles basin there. And that's where my father went to high school and started playing football and, and uh, ended up over at Fox Studios as a product. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Austin went to uh, went up there just to visit that little museum and house, and that's how big a fan he is. Oh. He went up there just to just to do that in Iowa. Well, that, so. the house is, you know, it's a very it's basically a one room house, yeah. and uh, the local uh, town Winterset has preserved it, and now they have a group of people who focus on just taking care of the house and giving people tours, and there's there's some information there, and they they do a I think they do like a birthday celebration festival thing there. Nice group of people. Yeah, I know he, he had told me when we were at the museum, he said, yeah, I went up to his house. And it was Iowa. Yeah. And he said, I toured that whole thing. So it's, it's Madison County. So it's where those bridges are, the covered bridges are. It's right there. It's a beautiful oh, place. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I have a friend that bought some of your dad's ranches, the El Dorado. Holdings is the name of it, Mike Ingram. Yeah, he bought ranches. I don't know if you know Mike or not. I do. I, I saw him a couple of weeks ago when I was in Texas. Yeah, yeah really he nice guy. Just, he was just fishing with me in, uh, down in South Carolina, my home down there. So uh, he he ended up with some of those ranches back in yeah. the day as developed. And so that's the name of his country. The company today is El Dorado Holdings. Cool. From the old movie. He's a nice guy. I like him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard, thanks for your time. I, I really appreciate you uh, making space for us in your day and, and sharing all the good things you do and a little of your history with us. And I uh, can't wait to see John Wayne on that car next year. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're working on trying to work out our schedule and the races and the dates and everything that's going on. We're going to be racing in L.A. at the Coliseum in early February. So wow. they took the Coliseum and put a racetrack around it's a week before the Super Bowl. I think we're going to be racing yeah. there two weeks before or something. So I may see you out there. Somewhere. Yeah, I'd love to come up there. Okay, yeah. we'll stay in touch. On only about an hour away. All right, okay. Richard. My best to you and and your family. And until uh, I see you again. Thank you so much for listening to the John Wayne Gritcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like what you heard, give us five stars in the Apple Podcast app and follow us on social media at John Wayne Official. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go.